Today on Basic, Chelsea Handler. I'm more comfortable in front of the camera than I am out of it. Like half the things I do on camera, I probably wouldn't do in real life. Everyone always thinks everyone's success happens quickly because you just didn't hear about the person and then you see them nonstop. But I did stand up for like seven or eight years before anything started gaining traction. And then I started getting little things and everything would lead to something bigger. But it was a grind because you're waiting tables and you're doing stand up and you're just wondering, what if you have to wait tables for the rest of your life? I think I was doing that sketch show and the sketch show wasn't performing well on E. This was the man who became my boyfriend. He was like, you should have your own nightly show. And the fact that we could make it 30 minutes and fast and fun, and it was like, it was so easy for me to do. It was just an instant success. And so I never even thought twice about it. Yeah, it was like being in a frat house. All we did is play practical jokes on each other. From like the minute I got to work, I would just start sending out emails from different people's accounts. I mean, we did things that we would be arrested for today. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Basic, the official podcast of the unofficial history of cable television. I'm Doug Herzog, a former TV executive, and like our guest today, I'm from Jersey. And I'm Jen Cheney, TV critic for Vulture and New York Magazine. And I'm not from New Jersey, but I have visited New Jersey. It's a lovely place, Jen. Our guest today is a top stand-up comedian, a best-selling author, and hosted one of cable's most memorable talk shows. Chelsea Handler hosted her own talk show, Chelsea Lately, on E!, competing with the high-profile late-night boys club of Jon Stewart, Conan O'Brien, and Stephen Colbert, and more than holding her own. So we'll talk to Chelsea about that and much more, but just a quick disclaimer before we get started. When we recorded this with Chelsea, she was with her boyfriend at the time, Joe Coy. They have since parted ways, so if you hear a reference to Joe, no, they're not back together, at least as far as we know. And hang around after when Doug and I will gossip about everything that we talked about with Chelsea. Welcome, Chelsea Handler, to Basic. Hi, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for thanks for <laughs> thanks for joining us today. So, Chelsea, as you know, um, we talk about basic cable TV here. So, the first question we ask everybody is, "Do you remember when you got cable television?" Basic cable, yeah. It's kind of vague. Did you watch a lot of TV when you were growing up? I did. I did watch a lot of TV. But I watched a lot of like Three's Company reruns. Right. And by that time, I don't know, when did basic cable come on the scene? Dawn of the 80s, as I like to say. You know, MTV started 81. Okay, yeah. And- so I think once I started, it was happening because I was six and I was born in 1975. So basic cable was on the scene before I got there. So what you're saying is you're a lot younger than me. Yeah. Well, who isn't? <laughs> 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 exactly. Chelsea, this is what old white guys, unemployed white guys do for a living now. Podcasts. Podcasts, exactly. That's where we That's, that's where what we everyone does for a living now is podcasts. <laughs> My dog has a podcast. <laughs> Amazing. I bet he, he probably has more listeners than us. So Chelsea, you grew up in New Jersey, and then I believe you moved to LA when you were like 19 or so. Is that right? Yes, I did. When you moved to California... Did you have like a specific plan about what you were going to do? It was just like basically to become really successful. Like that was my goal. There was no specificity. I just was like, I'm going to just go and express myself. And I think I'll be doing the world a favor. Like I had that kind of misplaced (laughs) confidence and I believed it. So like, I think if you really believe in yourself that much, it just becomes your reality, you know? I didn't know how I was going to do that. But once I found stand up, like, you know, somebody suggested that I do it. It wasn't even my own idea. I realized, oh, what an opportunity. Like you write your own material. You don't have to say anything you don't feel like saying. You're just expressing your opinions on things. How great is that? And you're on stage with a microphone and no one else is on stage with you. 
that was just like, oh, well, that seems like the right medium for me. Mm. But did you have any idea like how to even write stand up? Like, how do you even start doing that if you've never done it before? I think I was doing stand up for a long time before I did stand up. I was going to dinner parties and, you know, being the person who had all the funny stories. And I knew when like there was a punchline and basically stand up is either joke writing or storytelling. So Mm. if you're good at either one of those things, then you're going to be good at stand up most likely. And if you're good at both of those things, then you'll be successful as well. Because, you know, it is observational. You're choosing the lens within which you see things. So it's an opportunity to be as like true to yourself as possible. Mm-hmm. What was the stand-up scene like in LA when you jumped in? And, and what was it like for a young woman like yourself at that time coming literally straight out of the Jersey suburbs? It was fine. You know, I was, again, like very arrogant. Like I really believed like I had something to say, you know? So anyone that wasn't on my team, I didn't care. I didn't care. They, it was just, didn't. they didn't matter then, you know? And if there were people that didn't like me or weren't my fans, they also didn't matter. Like I just focused on the people I did have as fans and just kind of like being really really authentic, no matter what anyone said, like just be authentic and be yourself because that's what people respond to. Just out of curiosity, were you like an improv person or a comedy store person? Oh, or a- improv. Laugh Factory took a while to get into, but improv took a while to get into also. Comedy store is where I started, started. And then I kind of transitioned over to the improv more. And now if I go up, I go to the Laugh Factory with Joe because he loves it there. But um, yeah, when I was coming up, there wasn't a lot of women there was like Sarah Silverman, you know, Kathy Griffin and like some other people. Not many. Yeah, that wasn't a lot, but it didn't feel like I, I wouldn't say I felt like I was in a boys club. Like I knew I was in a boys club, but I just like, I didn't focus on that part. Mm-hmm. I didn't hang out at the comedy store or hang out with a bunch of male comics a lot. I had guys that are close friends of mine that are comics, but as a whole, there's a pretty depressing group of people. You know what I mean? Comics can be pretty dark. So it's like... I was like, yeah, no problem. I don't want to sit here and smoke cigarettes. You know, they didn't want me there. And I was like, okay, sure. Uh, So it was that kind of vibe. And girls weren't looking out for each other in the way that they should have been. You know, we were in such a boys club that you end up thinking you're the only female that can survive or succeed. And so you end up not being generous. And that's a real like unfortunate thing is that's the A number one rule is to help other women. Yeah. So when you're in an environment like that, it doesn't bring out the best in people. You were doing some acting as well. You got on a show on Oxygen called Girls Behaving Badly. Now, did that feel like a big break at the time or what did that feel like when you got that show? It felt like a cable show, like a really cheap cable show. Like (laughs) even getting it, you were like, oh, this is really cheap. (laughs) You know what I mean? It was fun. We had so much fun. I mean, I laughed so hard on that set. Like I think I peed in my pants twice in the middle of a scene because we were laughing so hard. It was so ridiculous. And it was a great tee up for my Chelsea Lately show because That was also more of the same, but in a more organized manner, you know, with a budget. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Girls Behaving Ballet was like a hidden camera show and was four other girls and myself. And we would just basically play really stupid pranks on people and try to get them to believe that like... I was a makeup artist for newborn babies. Like the minute they're born, I would do their makeup, you know, stupid stuff like that. Or I'd be at pregnant at a bar ordering shots, waiting for someone to say something to me, stuff like that. It was really fun. It was a very big learning opportunity because it was for women, you know, and not everybody got along great. 
So it was like, whoa, you don't ever want to be in a dynamic like that for your long-term job. That is not healthy for any person to be in a situation where they don't like someone they're working with. Mm. A couple of questions. I should know the answer to this, by the way. Was Oxygen the Oprah network? Yes. Did you ever meet Oprah? I've met Oprah. She interviewed me once at my house. Honestly, my long-term memory is questionable. (laughs) I keep telling stories. People are like, that's not what happened. I'm like, oh, whoopsie doodle. Yeah, that's been my experience doing this show. It's like, I don't remember anything from the 80s. (laughs) So being on Oxygen and on Girls Behaving Badly, and then you were also doing pretty quickly some stuff for E! for Tonight Show. You were getting a lot of TV experience pretty quickly. Were you immediately comfortable in front of the camera, having come from just being a kind of a newish stand-up? Well, I'm more comfortable in front of the camera than I am out of it. Like half the things I do on camera, I probably wouldn't do in real life personally. It's just a good avenue for exploration. It wasn't like overnight. Everyone always thinks everyone's success like happens quickly because you just didn't hear about the person and then you see them nonstop. But I did stand up for like seven or eight years before anything started like gaining traction. And then I started getting little things and everything would lead to something bigger. But it was a grind because you're waiting tables and you're doing stand up and you're just wondering... What if you have to wait tables for the rest of your life? How long do you felt it took you to sort of get to that Chelsea voice and point of view that we all know and love today? Like, how long did it take you to find that? I don't know. I mean, that voice is always in me. I guess you just refine it and refine it as you age, right? You get better at speaking (laughs) and better at expressing yourself. So you always have your own voice, but you just hopefully become more elegant, not less. That could go either way, though. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. So you were doing your sketch show at E! first, and then the opportunity to do Chelsea Lately came along. Did you ever think about trying to do like a late night talk show? Was that a form that was interesting to you or was it just somebody suggested it to you? And then it was like, oh, I guess I'll do that. I don't know. Yeah, I think I had thought about it. It wasn't a necessary goal of mine, like, oh, I have to do this. But I had thought about it like, oh, I like to run a conversation. I know how to listen to people and I know how to be in the moment and be engaging. I'm like, that sounds fun. 
I think I was doing that sketch show and the sketch show wasn't performing well on E! And they were like, we think you would be better on a nightly show. This was the man who became my boyfriend. And he was like, you should have your own nightly show. And I was like, how would that work? And the fact that we could make it 30 minutes and fast and fun. And it was like, it was so easy for me to do. It was just an instant success. And so I never even thought twice about it. I mean, even when I was doing it, I was like, oh, this is going to be awesome. And everyone's going to love it. And it was, it was just, you know, a total cultural moment. I wish I had your confidence. You were just so sure. Yeah, yeah. And you looked like you were having a great time every night on that show. Like you were having friends over. Yeah, it was like being in a frat house. All we did is play practical jokes on each other. From like the minute I got to work, I would just start sending out emails from different people's accounts. I mean, we did things that we would be arrested for today. So, but to answer your question, it was very easy to be on camera. That's very easy for me. I'm not self-conscious in that way. Big commitment too, right? To be doing it five nights a week, probably 40 plus weeks a year, right? Oh, yeah, it was ridiculous. You're just like chained to Los Angeles, which is, you know, not the worst thing in the world. But I like to travel and I like to bounce around. And I think I once sent in a cardboard cutout of myself to host the show. And they did that one day because I wouldn't (laughs) come back from Hawaii. I was like, I'm too happy right now. I can't come back. You have to get a cardboard cutout. So they made one and they're like, okay, we'll give you one more day. And I just was like, oh, God, yeah, after seven or eight years of that and doing book tours, like I did four books in that time, which led to book tours, which is a stand-up tour, which is on top of the four nights a week. So I burned out pretty quickly. Well, not pretty quickly. It took about seven years to burn out on all of it. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm done. I need a vacation. And obviously on that show, you interviewed a lot of different people. I'm wondering if you can remember an interview that just went completely south that didn't go how you wanted it to. And then one that was amazing and great. Tila Tequila was big at the time and she came on the show and I, I think she fell asleep during the interview or (laughs) she was on something. So that was a disaster, but uh, I mean, not that much of a surprise at the time. It was kind of like expected. And then what's something that went really well? I mean, Will Ferrell and Kevin Hart are pretty much the two best interviews. They just are so stupid, funny, and they're so easy to make fun of. And they're just good sports. So they're fun. Mm -hmm. I think those are the two best interviews. I'm wondering, is it better or more fun to interview comics because they are improvisers and they can just roll whatever you toss at them? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. I mean, most comics can. Some comics can't actually. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's a nice skill set is to be able to improvise. Mm -hmm. This was also what turned out to be like the peak time for like basic cable late night. So there was you, there was Jon Stewart, there was Colbert, there was Conan was on TBS and you guys were all winning. Did you ever feel like you were in competition with those guys or that wasn't something you or your staff were thinking about on a daily basis? Uh, only because there was an echelon, you know, like a pecking order of what shows you could do before you did other shows. So that was annoying because if I wasn't their competition, who cares if Sandra Bullock was going to come on my show first or whatever. So it was kind of like you had to cultivate lots of relationships with famous people to help service your show is basically what it comes down to that nobody wants anybody to go first. So that, that, in that sense, it felt like, well, are we, are you guys really worried about me? I'm on E like, come on. I guess it's just an exposure thing. But no, I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about like me being one of the boys. I was just having a great time. Mm -hmm. That's one of the good things about doing a show like that. It's available for everyone there to enjoy, which just spreads good, fun vibes. Mm -hmm. I mean, even if you weren't fixated on being the only woman in this group, it must have felt good to know that you're one of the few women who's ever successfully had a show like that still. 
Yeah, totally. I think of it that way now for sure. Mm -hmm. And going back to the E of it all, were they like super hands-on involved in your show or did you pretty much get to do the show you wanted to do? I had a lot of authorship over everything. They didn't, I mean, they would argue with me about language and stuff. You know, every afternoon we get a call in the booth to talk about what I could say, what had to bleep, or if I said the word pussy whistle, <laughs> why I would have to bleep pussy, but they could leave whistle. Like conversations like that. I'm really good at arguing. So I, I took a lot of pride in that element and aspect of things. But Ted Harbert was very involved in the show. He like spearheaded the whole thing, but let me pick out what we were going to do set wise and creative wise. All our job was just to make it funny. That's all they cared about. They're like, however you want to do it. After you left, you were speaking at some event. I think it was Code Media. And you said something to the effect of, I'm smarter than that show was, and I want to be doing a show that is smarter than I am now. Do you still feel that way about the E! show? At the time, I was just done with the circular conversation of celebrities. Mm -hmm. All right, enough already. Can we talk about anything a little bit more important? I just felt I was getting dumb. You know, I mm -hmm. wasn't challenging myself. You actually had to read those magazines for that job. Right. <laughs> so you do get dumber if you read those magazines. Speaking of not being dumb, you've written a <laughs> bunch of best-selling books. So how did all that start for you? And is writing something that comes naturally? Given the amount of books you have written, it seems like it might. Yeah, I mean, I love writing. I mean, writing, it all bleeds into each, each other. I, the the stand-up and the writing of the books and all of it goes together. Right now, I have my last book, Life Will Be the Death of Me. We have it at Peacock where we're writing a script for it. That's been a stand-up special. It's been a book. It's now going to be a TV show. I like things that aren't just one-dimensional. It lasts for a while. I take it on the road, and then I turn it into a stand-up act, you know, and then I tape a special. And so I like the fact that everything bleeds into everything, and writing, I think, is at the base of all of that. You know, when you're a comedian, you're writing your jokes. Whether you write them down or not, you're a writer. Mm -hmm. Joe Coy doesn't write anything down, ever. I go, are you serious? <laughs> I had, like, nine pages of notes when I started my my new hour that I would just stare at. I'd bring on stage for the first month and he doesn't ever write anything down. I'm really? like, what frequency are you on? Hmm. That's going to be tough when he wants to write his book though. I'll tell you that. That's so interesting. Well, exactly. <laughs> just to fill people in who may not be in the know, Joe is your boyfriend who also was on your show as a contributor. Chelsea lately. Yes. I'm curious. Do you guys like bounce comedy ideas off of each other? Like that approach, obviously that you just described of not writing things down is not your way of doing things, but are there things that you pick up from him and vice versa that you kind of use to develop your comedy? Yeah, totally. I mean, we're both in the same world. So like mm -hmm. he just shot his special. I'm about to shoot my special. He's directing my special. So he's oh, wow. definitely, he's got an eye for that sort of thing. I do not. I don't like dealing with any of those issues. I just want to go out and perform. Somebody can pick it all out and just make sure it's this tone of thinking or this tone of color. But uh, yeah, no, we bounce stuff off each other all the time. I mean, we're kind of like turning into this little double act. So I'm sure we're going to end up touring together because we just want to be together all the time. And it's like he cracked an iceberg, like he melted me. So it's <laughs> people are down with it. They want to hear about it. It's so cute. Like people are so inspired. They're like, oh, my God, if you fell in love, it could happen to anyone. <laughs> I like it. You and Joe, it's going to be like Beyonce and Jay-Z's tour, except for comedy. Mm, exactly. <laughs> now we just have to have a baby. That's going to be tough, Doug, because I'm 47 years old. Never say never, Chelsea. Never say never. Are you working on a, a new book at this point? Yes, I am. It's called The Filipino in Me, A Love Story. And what's it about? <laughs> Sounds like about her and Joe Coy. <laughs> yeah, it's about my relationship with Joe Coy and falling in love and, you know, just life. All of the good stuff. That's great. 
So I'm curious, obviously, after you left E, you went to Netflix and did a show for them and other things for them too. Did you feel like a difference between working in basic cable and then going to Netflix? Was it a culture shock or was it really just doing the same kind of thing, but in a different format? It was very new. You know, I went to Netflix before anybody did and it was just new, brand new. So in terms of the talk show experience, if you could say more of a corporate environment than Universal, it felt even more corporate. Really? It just felt so new. It felt slightly sterile because of the newness, you know, Mm. whereas E was something that was nicely worn in. Mm. That's interesting. I watched Hello, Privilege, It's Me, Chelsea, the documentary you did about white privilege. Yeah. And I'm wondering what you went through in terms of deciding to specifically approach that subject matter, because that came out in 2019. And honestly, the conversation around white privilege has only gotten louder and more contentious since then, I feel like. But you were really talking about it even before George Floyd and conversation got louder. So why did you want to explore that? Because I just thought nobody was going to have the balls to do it. Mm Mm-hmm. I just thought, you know, this is our white person's problems. So I thought, why not just start talking to white people as a white person? Because I was as curious as anyone else's about what the definition really is. It's a spectrum white privilege. It's not just one thing or one family. Like I always thought white privilege meant like the Rockefeller family or, you know, some legacy family who's been around for, you know, centuries and has old money. Like I thought... That was white privilege. White privilege, it turns out that it's a daily occurrence every minute, you know, you're experiencing privilege in this country and most of the world when you're white. So I wanted to learn with my audience. I knew my audience would like come with me, you know, because I have people who want to think and get smarter too. And so I just thought, yeah, I thought no one's going to ever do this. I should do it. And no, everyone told me, you know, of course not to, but everyone always tells me not to do anything. <laughs> so they were just like, oh, you're going to get so much backlash. I'm like, good. Who cares? I, I'm curious. I want to be better at being a human being. How much backlash can I get? You know? Mm-hmm. Eventually, you can reason with people and they realize it's not that big of a deal. It's good to have conversations that ignite other conversations. Sure. What, what kind of feedback did you get? Uh, I got a lot of positive feedback, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, some people, like there was a girl in the film even who was like, this is your privilege that yes. you get to make a documentary. You're right. I could have made it, but I also could have made a documentary about anything in the world. And I chose that because I want to do that. You know, I want to learn. I want to get better. If this was an ego project. I would go do a documentary about my dog and how much they don't respect me. <laughs> but uh, it was very uh, illuminating. And I was so glad I did it. And I made a lot of really good long-term friends from making that movie. Oh, cool. People that I didn't know. And I wouldn't have known had I not made that movie. There was a group of women in Orange County that you interviewed. Yeah, I'm not friends with them. (laughs) (laughs) Did you ever talk to them after the documentary came out or hear from them or anything? No, we were supposed to connect about doing some like local funding for something. But no, I don't think we did. Mm, okay. Yeah. I was just curious how they, they felt about it. Cause oh, I'm sure they're exactly the same. Yeah. I, I'm, I would imagine so. <laughs> but maybe not. Maybe not. I mean, not everybody stays exactly the same. Yeah. Never say never. <laughs> the world is an increasingly complicated place. Why did something happen? <laughs> I'm sure something has happened in the past 30 seconds. But comedy is a pretty complicated world these days. A lot more complicated, I think, than it used to be. I'd love to know what you think about that, just in terms of sort of the specter of cancel culture and, you know, whether it's Dave Chappelle and people losing their minds over what he says on a Netflix special or more recently, Ricky Gervais. Is that something you think about as you are hitting the stage these days? I don't think there's any need to like talk about any marginalized group at all in any way. We can all be more clever than that. 
that's good to have to be a little bit sharper. All people are saying is to not be racist or sexist or discriminatory. That's not that tall of an order. And I don't have to think hard about that on stage. It's a pretty easy pivot. I don't know if there would ever be a circumstance where you would have to worry about this, but are, are, do you have any concerns about like somebody coming on stage, like what happened with Chappelle at the Netflix is a joke event, or do you still feel pretty comfortable? I mean, yeah, you, everyone's beefed up their security that's on the road. I mean, yeah. that's unfortunate, but true. Like anyone who tours, you already have security and you just have to get more security. Yeah. So I thank Will Smith for that. <laughs> and then just in terms of what you're getting back from your audience when you're out there, do you feel like it's the same as it was pre-COVID or has it changed or evolved in a different way over the last couple of years? Everyone's just looking to forget everything. Everything is such a mess in this country specifically, never mind the world. So yeah, I think people just want to go to a show and relax and forget about it and relate. There's a definite like vibe and energy and it's a good one. Mm. It's a good energy because you know, you're with like-minded people. Yeah. I think a lot of people are just happy to be out of the house doing anything. <laughs> How long will you uh, be on the road, Chelsea? How long are you booked for at this point? Um, I've done about 65 shows wow. and I think I have about 35 more. Holy cow. So yeah, I take a couple of months off in between though. So ski season, I took two months off. I'll take a month off at the end of summer and then I'll go back and do the fall. And then I'll probably take a break and not tour again until I have my next book come out. Mm. Got it. And when you're on the road, how often, how many will you do in a, like a row or in a week? Three to five shows a week, depending if we add second shows and stuff. Um, yeah, I usually do about three to five. Cool. You've talked about this publicly. Your brother died when you were, I think, like nine years old, pretty young. And you've talked about yeah. the impact that had on you, like personally and your relationships. But I'm wondering if it affected what you decided to do as a career. Did it give you any sort of like carpe diem feeling that that made you the kind of person who was so confident that you would just be like, yes, I'm going to go be a success? Yeah, perhaps. You know, I can't really speak to that. I mean, who knows? With my, my personality would have been a lot different had he not died. I mean, I think I always had this kind of personality, but yeah, the drive to be independent, the drive to not have to rely on a man definitely was spurred from him dying, you know, and disappointing me and me thinking, oh, sh I'm going to have to grow myself up. You know, I'm the one I can count on. Don't rely on anyone else and certainly don't rely on men. Mm. I think it definitely added to my ambition and drive. When I work, I work hard. And when I don't work, I don't work really hard as well. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I I have a good relationship with work and myself. You know, it's not unhealthy because no one's ever going to tell you to take a break, but you, no one, no agent is like, Hey, I think you should take some time out. They don't, unless, you know, you have some problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I need to learn that lesson. <laughs> yeah. It's a good lesson to learn because I feel so healthy. I mean, I'm just like, if I want to read a book, I can read a book. Like now I'm about to gear up for like a heavy workload, but it's all phasing out nicely because now I have my set down. I'm about to film my special in Nashville at the Ryman. I don't have to write or worry or curate that anymore. That's down. So now I move on to the book. Now I can focus my days when I'm on the road on that. Mm -hmm. It's not always time to be so busy, mm -hmm. but there are times when I'm extremely busy and I'd like to be as present as possible and like as healthy as possible. Sure. You're shooting at the Ryman. That's so cool. What a great venue. Yeah, I know. I'm so psyched. It's going to be beautiful. It's beautiful. Awesome play. Ever been there, Jen? It's an awesome place. I have not. I've never been yeah. to Nashville. You should go to Nashville sometime. Oh, you got to go. Yeah. Nashville's where it's at. Yeah, a lot of fun. Yeah. A lot of fun. So we finish on a much lighter note, Chelsea, which is to ask our guests, do you have an all-time favorite basic cable show? Not including your own, of course. 
God, I hate to disappoint you guys, but it's just like, I can't, I don't know the difference between basic cable and cable. So as I like to tell people, it's not HBO or Showtime. So, you know, is there like a reality show? I know, I know. I already learned that lesson at the beginning of the podcast. No, I don't watch reality TV. I have no good answers for you. Fuck. Right. Can you give me an answer? Uh, <laughs> what about something on MTV, something on Comedy Central? No, I never watched any of that stuff. Really? Something else on E. No, no. Well, then just, can we just let her pick a TV show of all time that doesn't have to be cable? Sure. What's your favorite TV show? The Love Boat. Yeah. <laughs> it had all the ingredients that I need. Luxury. Interpersonal affairs, crew and cabin mixing that was below deck. You know, I loved it. And a vacation. Ugh, all in one. And great guest stars every week. Yeah. And a regular doctor. That's like, <laughs> I love that. So Chelsea Handler, Jen, you know, who really made her career in cable, she sort of went up this like weird cable ladder back in the day, you know, whether it was Oxygen and then E and a bunch of different things, ultimately landing her own late night talk show on E, which was kind of a big deal as it turned out. And it still is a big deal because there are not very many women in late night, as we've talked about before on this podcast. I mean, you have... Samantha B, you have Amber Ruffin, who both got shows after Chelsea did. Back in the day, Joan Rivers had a show for like a minute. Right. And she used to sit in for Johnny Carson a lot. But it's remarkable how few women have had the opportunity to do what Chelsea did. And she did it very successfully. That show was very popular for, you know, many years. She did it at a time when the competition was pretty stiff, as we talked about. You know, she was up against Colbert and Jon Stewart and even Conan on TBS. So it was like the cable landscape, forget about the network landscape, was pretty crowded back then. And she kind of did it her own way. She didn't really do a show like any of those guys, honestly. No, and I think that's what probably stood out to a lot of people and a lot of fans of that show is that it was... It had more of a casual vibe and it was not political in any way, unlike, you know, The Daily Show, which it was competing against. So for people who wanted to just avoid all that kind of stuff, Chelsea Lately was where you went. She has an awful lot of confidence, doesn't she? Unbelievable amount of confidence. <laughs> I will never have one... 18th of her confidence. When she said she just kind of took off out here at 19 and she was just like, I'm going to be rich and famous. I don't know how, but I'm going to be. She was, she was sort of ahead of her time because I feel like that's what every influencer thinks today. <laughs> Almost all of them not as talented as Chelsea Handler, but I feel like that's the way people approach the world a little bit these days. True. But even the influencers know how they're going to do it. It almost sounded like Chelsea was like, I'm just going to do that. I don't know how. I don't know what the career's path is going to be, but I just know I'm going to be successful. Yeah. And <laughs> she, man, she was. You know, it seemed like it happened overnight. She did go make a point to say it took her six or seven years of doing stand-up to kind of finally get on TV and find her footing. But it, it, it did seem to happen pretty fast. I also found it interesting, you know, her response to, you know, what's happening out there in the comedy landscape with cancel culture and, you know, sort of the position she takes, I often find comedians, for the most part, they don't publicly comment on those things like, you, you know, that, that are making the news these days with Chappelle and Ricky Gervais. Mm -hmm. Essentially, what she was saying without using this term was just don't punch down. Right. It's not that hard to not punch down, or at least it shouldn't be. Right. And it doesn't sound like that's what she does. And uh, it was it was it was just very interesting to uh, to hear her point of view in all that. It feels like every day with each new Netflix special, there seems to be another semi-controversy. Mm -hmm. But they all blow over, sort of. <laughs> have you seen the Ricky Gervais special? I have read about Ricky's special. I have not actually watched. Well, actually, no. It, it auto-loaded for me once when I was signing into Netflix. So I saw like a little bit of it, but that's it. I mean, not unlike Chappelle, it's 
Ricky Gervais. I think you know what you're going to get when you go through that door. It's going to be very hard hitting. It's going to be a little dark and it's not for everybody. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) But I I, I don't know. That's just one of my things about comedy. I'm I'm always like, they're comedians. And if you know what the brand is, you get to turn the channel. Well, that's true. You can disagree with it, but they're allowed to do what they do and you're allowed not to like it. True. But I think sometimes what comedians say can have ripple effects that extend well beyond that. Fair enough. Not to like get too in the weeds, but for example, I'm sure you read about people who were very upset that Chappelle opened for John Mulaney recently because they had paid to come see John Mulaney and they weren't expecting to see Dave Chappelle. And if they had known they were paying for Dave Chappelle, they might not have done it because they are very you know, upset by what he says about trans people. That's a very different scenario to me. And an interesting one too, when you think about it. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about like, you know, I'm sitting in that audience. I'm a John Mulaney fan. I don't really go for that Chappelle stuff. And then all of a sudden Chappelle shows up. Right. And it's just, well, I don't want to make this about Dave Chappelle because it's supposed to be about Chelsea Handler. I'm a fan of Dave Chappelle, but I just don't understand why he keeps going back to the same jokes that are clearly upsetting people. Like, I don't, I don't get it. Yeah. After he said he wouldn't, by the way. Yeah. My bad analogy is it would be as if you went to a uh, power station concert and Arcadia showed up. It would, that's a terrible analogy because I would also be happy about that. <laughs> oh, you would be. Okay. Yeah. You appreciated them both. I appreciated them both. I was more power station because John Taylor was in power station, but it's not like I would be offended if Arcadia showed up. Maybe it is a bad analogy. Um, well, stay <laughs> tuned for more bad analogies uh, and join us next week on Basic. Basic is a Pantheon Media production in partnership with Sirius XM. Hosted by Jen Cheney and Doug Herzog. Produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Lindley Ehrlich is our assistant producer. Mixed, mastered, and music by Jerry Danielson. Edited by Zach Spisner. You can find Basic on Apple Podcasts, the SiriusXM app, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us. Don't Don't forget forget to follow follow the show so you you never never miss an episode. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.